I know as soon as I ask the question, you've got lots of people in mind, perhaps one, perhaps seven, perhaps someone next to you. You've got somebody who's always got something crazy or unexpected coming out of the mouths. Somebody who's just got a little something extra that's going on that always seems to make being with them uh, interesting. <laughs> we'll use the word interesting. Uh, at our house, that somebody... Um, I know you thought I was going to say my wife, but I'm not going to say my wife. That somebody is our four-year-old. And she is currently going through what the child development experts call the language explosion. Any of you all familiar with that term? If you don't know that as a category that the child development experts talk about, you know it from experience if you've had a four- or five-year-old. You've got this gregarious and talkative little kid in the house. And for us, that four-year-old is 100% sure she runs the entire universe. <laughs> and she is, she's basically correct. Uh, when you've got a kid like that in your house, <laughs> life is bound to be interesting. And that has certainly been the case for us. Uh, at Christmas. She's always got something funny, always got uh, something unexpected to say. So my wife and three kids were uh, in the car driving somewhere and uh, Mary Did You Know comes over the radio. You know that song? Mary Did You Know It's Your Baby Boy. Oh, that's right, yeah. Um, So Mary Did You Know comes over the radio and after a little while, Queen Emery in the back uh, declares from her well-secured throne in the back seat, she says, no lie, This song is too sad. Let's turn it to a happier Christmas song like Carry On My Wayward Son. (laughs) Didn't expect that. (laughs) Four-year-old. She's got a thing for classic rock. True story. Seriously, if you see me tomorrow driving on the way to daycare tomorrow, uh, there's a good bet that we're probably rocking some Kansas. <laughs> Toto, yes, that kind of stuff. Um, so she says, this song is too sad. Let's turn it to a happier Christmas song like Carry On My Wayward Son. And Alden, uh, our 12-year-old, says, that is not a Christmas song. And, and Emery, of course, is like, yes, it is, Alden. So we, you know. Changing it now, your highness. Uh, Just last week, she was prancing around the house with a toy purse on her shoulder. And my wife said, knowing full well where it came from, "Uh, Emery, where did you get that purse? (laughs) And she says, under the tree. It's my Christmas present from Sophie. I saw my name on the box, so I opened it. (laughs) All righty then. Yes. Please let us know, Queen Emery, how we might serve you. Uh, We've come to expect uh, to be uh, told what to do when her universe might expect, you know, what to do to happen to keep her life intact. And we've come to expect, as a four-year-old, the unexpected. We've come to expect the unexpected. Um, What if if most of what we um, end up expecting isn't funny stuff from a four-year-old. But it's more like suffering and pain and hard stuff from life. Uh, At what age did you begin to expect that? 
How long did it take for that to be the way you felt? How long in life did your expectations begin to be not so much the funny stuff from a four-year-old, <laughs> but hardship and pain and suffering? In the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, uh, that's where the people of God had gotten to at this point. When we meet the Hebrew people in Egypt, uh, they had been enslaved, uh, and they had come, sadly, to sort of expect the hardship and the suffering. They were sort of done, it felt like, at the time. They were done expecting help, because in that context, hope felt silly. Exodus 1.8, in the chapter preceding, says, There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And that king feared that the people of God had grown too many and too strong. And so the Egyptians, the Pharaoh, began to oppress them. Verses 13 and 14 in Exodus chapter 1 say, They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. At what age did you begin to feel like, I'm feeling some bitter with hard service? So that's the context within which God does the unexpected. This is Christmas, friends. It's into this world of brokenness and hardship and pain and suffering that God does the unexpected. It had gotten so bad for them that the Pharaoh had declared an edict, in fact, an edict from on high, the king of Egypt, that all the sons born to Hebrew women were to be, as the previous verse, Exodus 1.22, before we jump into Exodus 2, that all the Hebrew sons were to be cast into the Nile, which means that Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, uh, that, that they expected par for the course as Hebrews who were experiencing slavery and who knew that this son was destined for death. It is into that tragic context where death had been declared the inevitable fate for all newborn sons that we come to Exodus 2, where the turn happens, where God does the unexpected, where God shows up and he hints here at how he is turning hardship and death into blessing and life. And this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To know the story and to tell the story of hardship and death and defeat that become blessing and life because of Jesus. Jump into verse 1. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi. Uh, the Levites would become the tribe the priestly tribe that acted as a mediator between God and his people in their worship. So it says, a man from the house of Levite went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Both were Levites. Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So press pause here real quick. A uh, real important note here. And most literally in the Hebrew text, uh, the word child doesn't occur there. It says she saw that he was good. She saw that he was good. 
This is an intentional echo from the account of creation in Genesis, where God saw everything he had made and declared that it was, it was good. It was good because it came from the heart of God, because it achieved the purposes for which God made it. It was good because his creation was doing what he had called it and designed it to do. And so this declaration about this son from this woman, Jochebed, Moses' mother, is, is her saying, this child is good. He is from God. And it's also in the context there, a personal declaration on the one hand of his purpose as created in God's image uh, to produce the goodness and glory of God. But even more than that, on the other hand, it's a declaration of hope in God's provision to bring about goodness from this tragic situation. It's a mom saying, no matter what the Pharaoh decrees, this child is good and God is good. And he will achieve his purposes even in the midst of this suffering and pain. So it's her sort of personal glimmer of hope in the middle of hopelessness. So she conceived bore a son and when she heard that and when she saw that he was a fine child, verse three, she hid him three months, and when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, same exact word used in the account of Noah and the ark in Genesis. So she took for him an ark. It's a papyrus basket. Same exact word used for Noah's ark. She took for him this ark, this basket, made of bulrushes and daubed it. She sort of smeared it with bitumen and pitch uh, to keep it watertight. Same verbiage about bitumen and pitch here uh, were used in the description of when Noah builds the ark. This ark language here is a hint that Jochebed herself, that Moses' mom, knew full well what she was doing in the context of evil and pain and suffering, knowing that the king of Egypt had said death for her son, she knew full well that she was placing this son in God's hope and provision and care. So she put the child in it, in the ark, and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, verse 3. Which, if you think about it, it's an act of hope and faith in the face of death. It's sort of her act of civil disobedience to hope for God's goodness despite the circumstances. And then look at verse 4. His sister, meaning Moses' sister, her name is Miriam, she stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh, likely one of many daughters, came down to bathe at the river while her young women likely quite a few attendants, walked beside the river. She saw the basket, literally again, the ark. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, verse 6, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Now, Exodus shows us next what I think is a clear sign of the sovereignty of God and his provision. It all hinges on this moment right here coming up in verse 6. It says, when she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. And then it says this, she took pity on him. This word is not a a sort of negative pity uh, like we often misuse the word. It's rather a positive compassion for the suffering of another. A positive compassion for the suffering of another. From where does a positive compassion for the suffering of another come? 
Pharaoh king of Egypt? Nope. Says she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now think about this. She obviously knows this is not an Egyptian baby (laughs) because why hide Egyptian babies? Think about this. This is why I say that uh, this is a sign of God's sovereignty and provision here. A daughter of the king of Egypt looks at this Hebrew child, this Hebrew baby, knowing full well what her own father has decreed. And in her own act of defiance against evil, in her own moment of hope, in the face of death, she has compassion. You know in the movies when there's that one moment in the whole thing uh, where it all hinges on that moment and it you know, sort of starts out in space or somewhere else and, and sort of narrows down to this tiny moment where this one little thing happens and it seems like the entire universe's fate is held in that one moment. This is that. This is a moment when the heart of God wins out and when his light shines through an unexpected place, a surprise source. In this case, the heart of the daughter of the very king of Egypt who has sworn to defeat the Hebrews and to kill this child. I suspect Pharaoh hadn't planned on that. Which is to say that when when Satan and when evil plot against the goodness of God, what they don't expect, what they can't account for, what there's no getting over for them is that from the heart of God comes grace. What Pharaoh doesn't account for in that moment is a crying baby, (laughs) a crying baby that elicits on behalf of the mother compassion. What Pharaoh didn't account for is a crying baby who elicits compassion in the heart of his own daughter. It gets even more unexpected. It gets even better. Look at where this small moment of compassion leads. Look at verse 7 and following. Then his sister, speaking of Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, now remember Moses' daughter watching there, she sort of says, hey, what do you know? A Hebrew child. A Hebrew child, Pharaoh's daughter. You probably, or one of your attendants, probably wouldn't dare nurse a Hebrew child, Right? Which is absolutely true. She's no dummy here. She knows exactly what she's saying. So she says, shall I go, verse 7, and call? Shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? (laughs) Pharaoh's daughter says, what a lovely idea. Go, she says in verse 8. So the girl went and called the child's mother. So think about this. Not only is Moses being saved... (laughs) but he is being cared for by his own mother and she is being paid for her services to wean him. Look at verse 9 here. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. This would have functioned not only as payment for caring for Moses, but also for the expenses involved in caring for him and paying her for nursing him. But it was also sort of a guarantee uh, for the Pharaoh's daughter that when he was weaned to age five or four or five or so at the time, um, that he would be returned. So it was sort of a guarantee of that. So the woman took the child, meaning 
<laughs> Moses' mom takes the child and ends up having the experience of nursing him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son, adopted into Pharaoh's household. She named him Moses, meaning Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Uh, We name our kids before or at time of birth or sometimes at the hospital or afterwards. Um, But they named children when, over the course of time, um, circumstances in the life of a child would sort of suggest a name. Um, So Pharaoh's uh, daughter names Moses drawn out of the water. Uh, Moses was saved to save God's people. The blessing began in the promise to Abraham continued through this most unlikely and unexpected of circumstances. Meaning an Egyptian king who had decreed to kill all Hebrew males without even knowing it until much later ends up protecting and raising and educating Moses. Think about this. Who would later confront him? in a standoff between his small G gods and the God of the Hebrews. God does unexpected things to make us his own friends. Moses would end up leading the people of God out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of oppression, into the land of promise where they could freely worship and serve God. I'll bet... That when Pharaoh, king of Egypt, uh, decreed that all Hebrew males be killed by being cast into the Nile, he didn't expect his own defeat would come at the hands of his own son who was saved by being cast into the Nile. God's got this figured out in ways we can't possibly begin to fathom. 